The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushduni had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scriptures. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it to every area of your life and thought. Covenant versus Detente, Chalcedon Position Paper number 85. St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.14 sums up a basic premise of God's law. Quote, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? Unquote. In Exodus 23, 31-33, all treaties and alliances with godless nations are banned, and this is restated in Exodus 34, 12-16, where this ban includes interfaith marriages. We are also told that all such unequal yoking is the prelude to idolatry, Deuteronomy 7, 3-4. Not only are treaties and marriages religious facts, but they also presuppose and require if they are to succeed, a common morality, law, and truth. Every religion has its own doctrine of morality, of law, and of truth. If we believe in Marxism, then we believe that truth is instrumental. There is no absolute truth, and words are as surely to be used as weapons as are guns. For Marxists, law and morality are determined by the dictatorship of the proletariat, and they are thus also relativistic and instrumental, not binding. The same words thus mean different things to a Marxist and to a Christian. Failure to recognize this fact means that Christians are regularly duped. They are duped because they refuse to take God's law seriously. They are not 
covenantally minded. A covenant is a treaty of law. God's covenant with man is an act of grace whereby God gives to man his saving grace in the laws of life, of holiness and righteousness or justice. Because God gives us his law as an act of grace, we cannot violate his covenant. His treaty with us in Christ by entering into a treaty with any unbelieving nation or in marriage with an unbelieving person. To do so is to renounce God and his covenant for other gods. It is an act of apostasy and unbelief. From beginning to end, Scripture speaks plainly on this issue. It tells us that the source of detente is unbelief. The word, quote, detente, unquote, is relatively new to English. It comes from the French, and only in very recent years has it gained much usage. It presupposes a humanistic religious faith and mission. Dale T. Irvin, a liberal seminary professor, has spoken of mission as, quote, dialogue, unquote, not conversion. For a time, Irvin met regularly with a group of prison inmates, not to convert them, but to hold a dialogue with them. Some would say that the prisoners converted him. Irvin is dubious that, quote, salvation comes only through one particular story, one particular history, unquote. He is happy that, quote, a new form of mission, unquote, is now underway and promoted by such groups as the Seminarians for Peace. This new mission is, quote, coexistence, unquote. For the, quote, Christian, unquote, participants in this kind of mission, in examples such as the Seminarians for Peace, quote, it was clear that the categories of Western Christian thought are in their last hours, unquote. For such people, there is no exclusive truth or revelation, and traditional Orthodox Christianity must die in order to make way for, quote, a new humanity, unquote. For Irvin, the true resurrection is to enter into a worldwide coexistence with all the old, quote, forms, unquote, now, quote, integrated into the common life of humanity, unquote. Dale T. Irvin, quote, mission as dialogue, unquote, in M.D. Bryant and H.R. Husey editors, Eugen Rosenstock Husey, Studies in His Life and Thought, pages 203 through 216, 1986, Edwin Mellon Press. In this perspective, all that matters is humanity as such, not God, not truth, not justice, only the coexistence of humanity, only detente. From China, we get a like word. The Beijing Review, January 12, 1987, tells us that Mao Zedong, in, quote, Two Talks of Philosophy, unquote, wrote, quote, The extinction of mankind and the earth is different from the end of the world, preached in Christian churches. We predict that after the extinction of mankind and the earth, more progressive things will replace mankind that is, a higher stage of development, unquote. Mao went on to say, quote, Marxism also has its emergence, development, and extinction. This may sound strange, but since Marxism holds that everything born must die, why shouldn't this apply to Marxism itself? It is metaphysics to deny its extinction. Of course, more progressive things will replace it, unquote. 
In such a faith, the only thing not permissible is the belief in an absolute God, the God of Scripture and His truth. In another issue of the Beijing Review, January 5, 1987, a student, Shailene, confesses that he once believed in a fixed Marxism and hence found it, quote, hard to believe our great Chairman Mao had made such monumental mistakes, unquote. But he did believe because the state told him so. He came to understand, and he titled his article, quote, What Marxism Means, unquote. But he did believe because the state told him so. He came to understand, and he titled this article, quote, What Marxism Means, unquote. It means that, quote, If reality changes, knowledge must change. Inflexible doctrines must be discarded, unquote. A true Marxist thus recognizes that it is change which demonstrates vitality. For this reason, quote, Marxism is powerful and there is hope for socialism, unquote. In terms of this instrumentalism is basic. People, words, truth, treaties, and all things else are valued only insofar as they can be used. There are no unchanging values. In terms of this, Detente, not covenant, is man's practical course of action. One American general, in expressing his dissent with U.S. foreign policy and its dedication to Detente, did so on Christian grounds. He was told that his, quote, devil theory, unquote, of foreign policy, an example of belief that the issues involve good and evil, is, quote, untenable, unquote. The Bible tells us that our relationship to God is a covenantal one. That is, it rests on His grace and is in terms of His law word. On both counts, it is personal. Quote, sin is the transgression of the law, unquote. 1 John 3, 4. Sin, moreover, is the transgression of the law of the totally personal God, and it is offensive to Him. In the humanistic state, Law is an impersonal fact, whereas to the triune God, sin is a personal affront. When the concept of, quote, crime, unquote, replaces, quote, sin, unquote, we depersonalize the offense. The legal charge, then, is the state versus the criminal, whereas in Scripture, it is God versus man. Humanism also depersonalizes the relationship between the sinner and the one sinned against. Marriage becomes a legal tie, not a totally personal union which involves two persons, two families, and all society. The covenantal relationship is under God. The humanistic relationship is ultimately atomistic and is governed by autonomous man. To remove the covenant of God as the foundation of man's life and of law and society is to open the door to total relativism, to detente. Because of the spirit of detente, in example, peaceful coexistence, we now have a major movement to legalize sodomite and lesbian marriages. There is also a move to drop adultery as a ground for divorce, property divisions in divorce, and children's custody. The logic of detente requires us to subordinate all things to peaceful coexistence. The poet William Blake was an early advocate of Detente. He wrote of it honestly as, quote, the marriage of heaven and hell, unquote. In any such, quote, marriage, unquote, 
Heaven must cease to be heaven, for to coexist with hell is to turn all things into hell. St. Paul tells us that the unequal yoking is evil and forbidden. It is also a surrender, because what fellowship can righteousness or justice have with unrighteousness or injustice? What communion, he asks, can light have with darkness? The requirements for detente with darkness is to put out the light. It is startling, then, to find many churchmen who piously opposed mixed marriages advocate mixed politics, mixed everything, as the, quote, common sense, unquote, perspective. There is an old saying about something or other not having a snowball's chance in hell. The point in this saying is that a snowball in hell is not in its proper context. A snowball at the North Pole has a good, quote, life expectancy, unquote, but not at sea level at the equator. The same is true of all unequal yoking. We have today many advocates of cultural, educational, and political conservatism who preach detente, unequal yoking, as the solution. One conservative periodical recently held this concept as the hope of the future as the solution to our problems. Charles Hodge, a century ago, saw the fallacy in such thinking. Speaking of state education, he wrote, quote, He that believes most must give way to him that believes least, and then he that believes least must give way to him that believes absolutely nothing. Unquote. Popular Lectures on Theological Themes, page 283 F, 1887. At one time, both Catholics and Protestants opposed all such unequal yoking. Now too often, both are often avid for it. At one time, a declaration by God commonly recognized and obeyed was His Word in Isaiah 42, 8. Quote, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Unquote. The Lord God is emphatic that he will not give his glory to another. The prophets repeatedly declare God's wrath and judgment on all persons and nations who practice unequal yoking, who make alliances with ungodly nations, and who believe that man's diplomacy and detente, rather than God's law, is the way to peace and to victory. If the Old Testament and the New are true, then it is clear that we face a worldwide judgment for our policies of detente. We have made our peace with evil and become evil. We have had more faith in detente than in the power of our covenant God. We have done evil and called it good. The men and nations of the world have treated God and His law as irrelevant and immaterial to their problems, and now they face their greatest problem, the wrath of God. Detente is an alliance with evil to accomplish a humanistic good, and it is therefore as much under God's judgment now as in biblical times. God, who does not change, condemns all forms of detente. Liberation theology is a form of detente. It is easy to condemn such an unequal yoking. However, does such a practice of detente become tenable and holy if we practice it? Does, quote, our side, unquote, define what is good, or does God? The essence of injustice and evil is, quote, In those days there was no king in Israel. In example, God was rejected as king. 
Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Unquote. Judges 21, 25. The covenant requirement is, quote, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Unquote. Deuteronomy 6, 6. And shall govern all of life. Jesus Christ is the covenant redeemer come to create a new covenant people and to empower them to establish his kingdom. All who are brought into the covenant of God by his grace are, in terms of scripture and the ancient laws of covenants or treaties, vassals of God in Christ. The vassal cannot enter into any treaty with another power or with anyone who is not also a vassal of the triune God. To do so is to betray the covenant and to be guilty of treason. The covenant God requires uncompromising and unswerving allegiance. Then alone is our warfare God's warfare. The curses pronounced in Scripture are curses against covenant breaking, and the blessings pronounced are for covenant faithfulness. To be in the covenant is to be in God's power and endowed with it. Oliver Cromwell was a strong champion, not of any particular church, but of God's covenant. In a letter to his son-in-law, Lord Fleetwood, husband of Cromwell's eldest daughter, Bridget, Cromwell wrote on June 22, 1655, quote, Dear Charles, my love to thee and to my dear Biddy, who is a joy to my heart for what I hear of the Lord in her. Bid her be cheerful and rejoice in the Lord once again. If she know of the covenant, she cannot but do so. For that transaction is without her, sure and steadfast, between the Father and the Mediator in His blood. Therefore, lean upon the Son, or looking to Him, thirsting after Him, and embracing Him, we are His seed. And the covenant is sure to all His seed. The compact is for the seed. God is bound in faithfulness to Christ, and in Him to us. The covenant is without us a transaction between God and Christ. Look up to it. God engageth in it to pardon us, to write His law in our hearts, to plant His fear so that we shall never depart from Him. We, under all our sins and infirmities, can daily offer a perfect Christ, and thus we have peace and safety and apprehension of love from a Father in the covenant who cannot deny himself. And truly in this is all my salvation, and this helps me to bear my great burdens. M. H. Watts, God's Covenants, Volume 1, page 10F. In Detente, all we have is man and his folly. In the covenant, we have the power of the triune God. April. 1987. The Risk-Free Life, Chalcedon Position Paper, number 86. It was shortly after World War II that I encountered the demand for an end to baseball playing by grade school children. It was too competitive, said some angry woman liberals. It was also too individualistic, they complained. And a boy at bat or catching a fly ball had too much concentrated and isolated responsibility placed upon him. Such a game, it was said, could have traumatic consequences. The women were also against losing. Defeat could be disastrous for some children. 
They did not stop to think that there can be no victory where there is no possibility of defeat. It also did not occur to them that the more competitive a group game is, the more cooperation it demands for winning. As for traumatic effects, it is true that defeat can be traumatic for some, but to eliminate the possibility of victory is truly deadly. It is true that the fear of defeat can be traumatic for a coward, but why encourage the coward in us all by eliminating risk? The risk-free life is a victory-free life. It means a lifelong surrender to defeat, and nothing can be more deadly for man and society. The lust for a risk-free life is all around us. It governs politics all over the world. Its logic leads to the world of Marxism, where the removal of the risk of failure for some means failure for all. An economy guaranteed against failure is an economy insured against success. All too often today, men want to start with a guaranteed success, not with risk. As a result, we have in increasing evidence fraudulent successes. In example, insider trading, artificially inflated stocks, and much, much more. The goal in all these dishonest activities is success without risk. The risk-free life, however, is a deadly illusion. Freedom always involves risk. Eliminate the risk of freedom and you thereby establish slavery and defeat. But risk is still not eliminated. If the risk of freedom are banned, the risk of tyranny are insured. Slave labor camps represent a higher risk in the USSR than do the risk in a free society. But this is not all. The Soviet military intelligence, GRU, for example, has a high risk factor to ensure performance. Anyone entering the GRU knows from the beginning that if he disobeys or fails in even minor ways, he will be cremated alive in punishment. Victor Suvorov, Inside the Aquarium, page 2F, 93, 162, 190, 233, 237, 239F, New York, New York, Macmillan, 1986. In every aspect of the, quote, risk-free, unquote, life in the Soviet Union, the risk of slavery make pale by comparison those risks which freedom requires. Unhappily, throughout the Western world, the risk of freedom are highly unpopular. It is not an accident that capitalists and unions alike love monopolies and subsidies. They fear risk. In state after state in the U.S., gerrymandering by Republicans and Democrats serves towards ensuring their control of the political machinery and eliminating risk of defeat. In whatever the sphere of action, those in power are most opposed to risk because it can bring about defeat for them. The establishment uses its power to lessen risk for itself as a necessary step towards retaining power. After all, revolutions are made by those out of power who are seeking power. I was a grade school student when I first read Shakespeare's Julius Caesar and memorized with delight many of the speeches. One which I cannot forget is Caesar's comment, quote, let me have men about that are fat, sleek-headed men, and such as sleep o' nights. Yon Cassius has a lean and hungry look. He thinks too much, 
such men are dangerous, unquote. In other words, power-hungry men out of power are consumed with a lust for power. But there's more, much more. Those who have the most to lose are those least prone to risk and to bold actions. Remember that the bold, enterprising, and innovative work that went into the birth of computers came from young outsiders. Most of the bold entrepreneurial action of the post-war years has come from newcomers. The major corporations have declined or stagnated, and their, quote, gains, unquote, have come from buying out the new men. Bankers favor such loans because banks invest usually in established success, which means that banks invest in the past. Today, in the U.S. and elsewhere, the major political forces are made up of well-established and powerful men. These are men who have the most to lose and hence the least to venture apart from money. Given the liberal establishment of the U.S., it is not surprising that the Democrats command the most wealth in their ranks. The number of wealthy men ready to risk the wrath of the powers that be is very few, and they are under attack. Power always draws the strongest support. The Republicans, however, are no different. Power is always concerned with power, not risk. The conservatives also play the same game. In order to create a movement to win the country over to their cause, conservatives create groups of powerful men and thereby sentence themselves to impotence because they have created an alliance, council, or organization of men who have too much to lose to be bold. The result is sterility, and such groups become an effectual on the national scene as a ladies' sewing circle. It was no accident that the major political and social impact of recent years came from student movements. These student groups were sometimes chaotic, disorganized, and highly foolish, but their total impact was remarkably great. They had little to lose and hence were ready to lose it. Their causes were far more important to them than any penalties that risk would involve. In the U.S., since Doar's Rebellion and the Risky Rebellion to the present, the risk-takers have commonly been foolish and have shown a talent for courting defeat. On the other hand, the established power groups have uniformly drifted into disasters because all their efforts have gone to keeping power, not towards creating a harmonious society. Elsewhere, the men like Cassius, men of envy, hatred, and enmity, have overthrown by revolution their hated power brokers, only to become far worse instruments of power. They have taken risk, but only for evil ends. It is thus important to examine the full implications of a risk-free world. Risks are inescapable, and we face either the risk of freedom or the risk of tyranny. But risk rests on a world order beyond man and society. We are born into a world of risk because we face the risk of death from the moment of our birth. Men may imagine it, but they cannot abolish the risk of death from this world. This is not all. There is also the fact of moral risk. From day one of creation, man faced moral risk and death. If he, for <clears throat> if he partook of the forbidden fruit, 
Genesis 2:17. Risk was built into paradise, and it is certainly very much a part of our fallen world. To dream of a risk-free world is to imagine a creation without hell, and also without heaven. It means the denial of any moral antithesis in creation. If there is no good nor evil in the universe, then there can be no heaven nor hell. This involves denying the reality of justice. Justice rests on the premise that it matters to God and to the very being of creation that good prevail and that evil perish. From my earliest days, one of the resounding verses of Scripture for me has been Judges 5.20 from the Song of Deborah. Quote, They fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. Unquote. Justice is written into every atom of creation, and justice is inescapable. To deny hell is to deny justice. As Emory Storrs observed years ago, quote, When hell drops out of religion, justice drops out of politics. Unquote. One can add that when hell is denied as a reality and place, hell reappears as worldwide injustice and evil. Earth then becomes hell because the reality and finality of justice is denied. To deny hell is to insist that life must be without moral risk. When churches become antinomian, they quickly then downplay the fact of hell because it emphasizes the ultimacy of God's law and justice. To deny hell is to deny the reality of morality and justice and to affirm a cosmic relativism. The fact of hell is our reassurance of cosmic justice. But there is more. If we seek to eliminate risk from life and society and to eliminate hell from eternity, we also eliminate the Sabbath rest and heaven. The Sabbath rest is meaningless apart from salvation. The Sabbath is a covenant fact, a celebration of salvation. Hence, the Passover dates the weekly Old Testament rest and the resurrection, the weekly New Testament rest. If there is no salvation, there is no rest. Quote, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Unquote. Isaiah 57, 21. Paul tells us that our, quote, labor is not in vain in the Lord. Unquote. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. He does not say that it is risk-free. In fact, Paul is able to catalog the risk he took by preaching the gospel and the penalties he suffered. Imprisonment, beating, stoning, shipwreck, and much, much more. What he does tell us is that the moral risk have their certainty of reward because God's law and justice govern all creation. It was after the end of World War II that our child-centered, risk-free culture began to predominate. Today's newspaper carried a story about the growth of criminal activity among children under 10 years of age. One police officer expressed his dismay at the evil dispositions and vicious street knowledge of such children. This should not surprise us. Children who have been spared the trauma of punishment are taught thereby that justice does not exist. It is still true. Quote, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Unquote. Proverbs thirteen twenty four. We teach our children that there is no justice if we do not punish them.
The dream of a risk-free life is an evil dream because it is in essence a denial of causality. It is an insistence that cause and effect do not exist and it is a denial that, quote, the wages of sin is death, unquote. Romans 6.23 It is also a denial of justice because it rejects the fact that the life involves inescapable moral judgments and risk. The dream of a risk-free life is closely related to the pornographic imagination. Pornography gives man a world which is an imaginary one, one in which moral consequences are totally absent, and a world in which all things revolve around the individual's desires. Real people are lacking in the world of pornography. The evil imagination runs right and reorders all things to suit itself. Risk are removed from pornography in order to satiate, without limitations, the evil imagination. The only risk-free world is in the evil imaginations of men. It has no substance nor reality. It cannot exist in the real world. Those who dream of a risk-free life are sooner or later all losers. May 1987 Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he assures by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
Yeah, boy.